Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Since 2013, Bombas has donated over 100 million socks, underwear, and T-shirts to those facing homelessness. If we counted those on air, this ad would last over 1,157 days. But if we counted the time it takes to make a donation possible, it would take just a few clicks. Because every time you make a purchase, Bombas donates an item to someone who needs it. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. You're on Team Human, where we envision bottom-up, human-centered responses to the stultifying, fear-based tactics of those who would control us. We challenge exploitation as a way of doing business and seek to retrieve and restore the people and places so conveniently externalized by the growth economy. Most of all, we challenge the notion that human awareness is a computational process, reducible to numbers or a box on the spreadsheet. I am not a number. I am Douglas Rushkoff, and I'm on Team Human. Playing for Team Human today, Civic Hall Labs Executive Director Elizabeth Stewart. The word civic in front of technology needs to actually, you know, mean something. So it's not just about the end outcome of what the technology does, but also the how it gets created. Elizabeth will be explaining how we can pivot digital technology toward the public good. It's time to intervene on behalf of people. This is Team Human. You can join Team Human too by going to teamhuman.fm and clicking on support. Join us as a subscriber and get assigned membership card, free books, and most important, access to our Team Human Slack channel where we're conspiring to take back the planet. Well, the world is certainly feeling up for grabs these days. I'm getting a lot of email asking me to comment on North Korea, the Nazi rallies, the Charlottesville murder, the Boston protests, Stephen Bannon's departure. And what I want to challenge is that anyone, me included, should necessarily have an immediate response to any of this. There's a really a difference between having a considered response and just reacting in the moment. I mean, sometimes we can react in the moment and react appropriately, but for the most part, we react on impulse. We react from our reptile brain. We react when we need an immediate fight or flight answer to a threat. What we really need now are something more like responses, where we take the time to consider the entire system that we're dealing with and think, how do I really want to respond to this? What is the best next move that I can make? When you look at Trump himself, the reason why he gets in so much trouble is because for the most part, he's reacting. He's reacting off the cuff and then having to commit to that direction. I mean, that's why when we then react to him, we end up going further off, further in there in a, in a kind of a call and response where our responses are not real responses. They're just impulses. I, I understand you need a fast response, a reaction even, if a Nazi is about to punch you or your friend in the face. But each and every one of us doesn't have to know how we feel about everything that's happening right away. It's as if the constant 
churn of news media is demanding that we each manufacture a coherent set of responses in sync with every new crisis. Who says so? And who really cares what any of us thinks about every single issue anyway? The speed at which all this stuff is being broadcast has much less to do with world events than the way that entertainment corporations competing for eyeballs work in an attention economy. And the reality show will only get more and more frenetic as it proves to be a profit center for these conglomerates and the entertainment platforms that they own. When we try to maintain that pace, our responses devolve into mere reactions. And it's harder to consider what to do when we think it's incumbent upon us to do something right now. So my first considered response is, you know, don't feed the trolls. We're living in a digital media environment. And what happens in the comment sections of Twitter or Instagram ends up trickling out and happening in the world. So we can recreate the mindless chaos of the net in real life and let our behaviors migrate from one place to the other. But I'm arguing we really shouldn't. In, in digital spaces, we can't help but react. In real life, we have the buffers enabling us to choose to respond instead. So just because some people say they're going to go stand somewhere and shout some awful thing about blacks or Jews or some praising thing about Nazis, does that mean we've got to run out there and be with them and contradict them? Does every stupid thing someone says require us to marshal our limited time and resources and give them a response? Does, for that matter, should we all be listening to Rush Limbaugh and, and, uh, um, the Hannity Report every day and responding with essays to that stuff? Do we, do we want to honor it to that extent? I'm not sure. You know, when I look at the difference between what happened in Charlottesville and what happened in Boston, I feel like I'm seeing the difference between people reacting to horror and people responding to horror. In Charlottesville, members of Antifa, the anti-fascist network, were willing to put their bodies on the line to repel the Nazis and protect others. They met violent intentions with at least the willingness to respond in kind if necessary, and violence ensued. Whether the Nazi with the car would have run people over if everybody had been committed to nonviolent Gandhi-style passivity, we'll never know. I do know that two of my progressive neighbors committed to purchasing firearms after the rally, which is not encouraging to me. That, again, looks like a reaction and not a response. You know, the Boston protests, on the other hand, consisted of a couple of dozen supremacists and some tens of thousands of anti-fascists committed to humiliating the Nazis with their mere presence. Their calm mockery reminded me of that town in Germany. It's an unwilling host to an annual Nazi rally. And they chose to respond by having the whole town show up as clowns when the Nazis march. They even mark the street. They make it look like a, a walkathon, a, a racetrack walkathon. And they raise money based on how far the Nazis march and they have flags at the end and they thank the marchers and they hold up signs and say, oh, look, you Nazis, look how much you've just raised for our uh, Nazi uh, deprogramming charity where they uh, help deprogram young people who've been uh, uh, who became Nazis. Is Antifa wrong to be maintaining violence in its toolkit? Not necessarily. My relatives were murdered in the pogroms in Russia, and many Jews who survived 
blamed them, blamed my relatives for their passivity. They preferred the tactics of the Warsaw Ghetto, where the people who lived there fought against the, the incoming Nazis in that case. And nobody ever doubted which side was more righteous. There were no false equivalencies cast between the Nazis and the defending inhabitants of the Warsaw Ghetto, um, just as there really can't be any equivalencies drawn between uh, violent Nazis and defending Antifa who are willing to be violent if they're being attacked in order to stop their skull from getting bashed in. The power of an Antifa arms and all, would be to demonstrate some truly elegant Aikido, though, in some extremely complicated situations. They need to show how having Kung Fu on the side of the people can help preserve our dignity along with our skulls. The real question is whether there's a way to do nonviolent protest without martyring oneself to the cause. You know, do we have to be willing to get run over in order to make our case? I don't know. Statistically, nonviolent protest has earned more big wins than those that involve any sort of violence. But when we see the circle of history seemingly bringing us back to where we were, maybe where we've always been, it's certainly worth considering a new response. I'm going to have an Antifa organizer on the show in the next couple of weeks, and we'll be engaging her on a lot of these questions. Hi, I'm Alex Juhas, and I'm on Team Human. My name is Micha Sifri, and I'm on Team Human. I'm Caroline Jack, and I'm on Team Human. I'm Thea Mancini from Open Collective, and I'm on Team Human. My name is Arya Sirius, a.k.a. Ken Goffman, and I'm on Team Human. This is Douglas Rushkoff. You're on Team Human. This week, our guest is Elizabeth Stewart. I'm delighted to welcome her to the studio. She's the executive director, the founding executive director of Civic Hall Labs. So we're here at Civic Hall Labs, a new adventure in uh, civic technology. And I was hoping you could, because uh, you probably had to do this a bunch now, but for the audience to have some d- d- grounding in this, what is it you're doing? How, and how is it, how is it unique in this, uh, in our little technology and civic environment? Yeah. Thanks. Thanks for having me on, first of all. So Civic Hall Labs is a lab where we want to be running a lot of new experiments around new models on how to use technology for the public good. So that's how we define civic tech, is the use of technology for the public good. We think that the word civic in front of technology needs to actually you know, mean something um, more than uh, the what that gets created, right? So it's not just about the end outcome of what the technology does, but also the how it gets created. We know that um, the how actually needs to matter more than it does. I mean, you think about the headlines in coming out of Silicon Valley, despite, you know, whatever the, the product or service is, there's a lot of, let's say, injustices and things that are happening in, in creating those products. And so we really want to think about how do we utilize tools of Silicon Valley? So digital tools, product development tools in service of the public, but we also know that they're imperfect and they need to be, Mm -hmm. they need to be tweaked. So we need to think about how we actually create the technologies if we're going to call them civic tech. Right. So Uber could have been a civic technology if it were designed differently, right? Yeah, no, I really, I really believe it could have, you know, Lyft was, the early competitor to Uber and Lyft actually started with a social mission to, you know, take more cars off the road and do kind of a car sharing uh, model, right? It really did have more of a social mission. Um, And I think that that intention um, of how these companies start, right, with these missions uh, really helped to sort of set up whether they become civic and, and social in terms of generating social and civic returns versus, you know, just financial. And they're not necessarily at odds, though. Um, in, t- in terms of social and, and uh, yeah. financial returns? Yeah, can't you make money 
enough money, a sustainable revenue on a company that also is civically not just responsible, but positive? Yes, absolutely. And I, you know, so I don't, I don't want to at all, um, you know, misconstrue. I also have those, you know, strongly held beliefs that profits are important part of the equation for anything to be sustainable. I think the biggest difference is the type of capital going into a lot of these startups, which is the VC dollars. Right. And the intention of those VC dollars matter in that they're looking for 10x, 20x returns. In a lot of cases that force companies that might start out with a social mission to go down some other paths in order to generate those returns as the top priority. Right. So you might have a great idea. Oh, I'm going to do some kind of, you know, B&B network service and mm-hmm. people have extra bedrooms and they can make money and other people can travel the world and meet with people. And then you get in a, just a couple of billion dollars of VC <laughs> right. and all of a sudden people want you making more money. Yeah, I know. That's it. It is how it works <laughs> um, right now. And, you know, and I think the the part that feels like there's a huge gap um, in terms of companies that want to stay in the social or civic mission and focused, right, and still make money. And we don't really have the right kind of capital. Often called patient capital, impact investing is obviously the field that kind of deals with these discussions. But for the most part, it's it's not being utilized in the way it should be to give companies kind of that long on-ramp to really figure out these models and and have people be okay with, you know, not the 10x, 20x return. So where is that kind of in-between capital for starting a lot of these ventures? It's, right. it's really lacking. And there are some models out there, I guess. You know, I mean, I know they come from far-flung places usually, New Zealand or somewhere, mm-hmm. to say, okay, here's a model for some kind of debt instrument or platform cooperative or you know, voting rights that move in a different way so that capital is alongside all of the other stakeholders rather than dominating them. I mean, do you guys teach some of that, like how to recognize good and bad business models? Yeah, great question. So we are about to launch something called our Civic Excel program, and it's an ideas accelerator. So it's an early stage. How do you take an idea and see it through to some sort of well-researched, viable prototype. So really trying to solve a problem first and foremost with a product or service before you start to think about the business model, which I think is a little bit different than a lot of accelerators. So we're really trying to get at, you know, what is the solution and the value that it's create is being created and then start to think about these revenue models. And I think that part of being a successful social entrepreneur is understanding a whole range of different capital options and financing options that are available. You have to be pretty creative in order to succeed, you know, Mm -hmm. layering in philanthropic grant capital in some cases to get going, coupling it with um, crowdfunding, you know, as as another layer, getting into early stage accelerators where you do get a little bit of money. So there's there's a lot of linkages that are needed to get something going. Um, So we're absolutely going to be working with the folks coming through that accelerator on how then to follow up on the business model and and really map out a, a path of getting some traction in the markets and and hitting the milestones that you need to hit to attract investment. And how do you teach them to fold in, you know, uh, uh, almost universal social values? How do you fold in environmentalism into your development process? How do you fold in economic justice? How do you fold in uh, minimizing your slavery footprint, things like that. I mean, do you, do you teach sort of how to look at the, the things that other companies externalize and instead see them as part of the offering? Yeah, I think, you know, there's two ways to look at that. One is um, the impact that the actual venture is trying to have, right, which which hopefully is creating civic or social value. And then, like you said, it's it's the how or it's the, the ingredients that go into that. So how are you treating the environment? How are you treating your employees and the, and the labor and the vendors and, and those practices that make um, a good business? And there's some guides now out there. So, you know, exposing people to be certified B Corp is the sort of certification and now also a legal structure that helps to build in some of these practices in terms of building um, a company that has these values. You know, often 
I've worked with social entrepreneurs that that have really great intentions in terms of the impact that they're trying to have with a product or service. However, the inputs, right, and getting there, you know, there's a lot of corners cut along the way, and and it's hard. I mean, it's it's really hard as a social entrepreneur to to be so considerate around all of those things. But thankfully, again, there are guides to start to put some of those things in place, and a lot of impact investors are starting to look for that B certified or that B Corp kind of status to to say that you're actually, you know, thinking and planning along these lines. I mean, a lot of the efforts I see are socially good versions of socially bad things already in existence. So, okay, we're going to make an alternative, uh, you know, an alternative Facebook that doesn't rob your data. We're going to make an alternative Uber that doesn't put drivers out of business. We're going to make an alternative Airbnb that doesn't create fake hotels. Yeah. do those ever work or are the established players, you know, can, can a fair mondo ever bring down an Amazon, you know, or is the, are these, are these structures just too entrenched to challenge in that way? I think it's a really good question, Doug. I'm not sure. Honestly, I, I think that this is the part where I am cautiously optimistic, but also a little pessimistic as well. Uh-huh. These structures run very deep. I mean, as you've written a lot about, you know, the how technology, these models are basically built on the foundation of, of extractive capitalism. And so how do we really start to get out ahead of that? The tech industry is still relatively new in a lot of cases. You know, are, can we jumpstart new models that could really compete? And I think it's going to it's going to take the power of the crowd, if you will, to really understand these nuances and decide that they want something different. And that's that's where I think the big question mark lies. Right. Can we communicate yeah. the value proposition in a way that people really do? Yeah. Where it's not just about frictionless, seamless you know, whatever in exchange for all of my data or, you know, in exchange for more and more revenue, ad, ad, you know, dollars. Right. Well, that is also a lot. A lot of that is about teaching users that they're not just consumers, you know, and but and the other a lot of the apps, a lot of the, the developers, even young, smart, civically minded ones still think of their users as consumers. And if you are, then, yeah, then what are the values you're going to mm-hmm are you going to go for are going to be seamless, efficient, frictionless. I want to push a button and have my food come. I don't care if the restaurant's losing money on me. Right. Right. You know, can, have you seen a technology or interface? Is there a design approach that helps make users more aware of the ecosystem that they're involved in? Is there ways, are there ways to make that transparent or visible? Oh, that's, that's a great question. I mean, that would be a fantastic design um, project and, and problem statement for some, <laughs> some you know, some uh, fantastic design school to tackle. You know, I think that we're, we're really interested in folks who are wanting to use technology for the public good and tackling problems that for-profit Silicon Valley startups aren't looking to be involved in because they're not lucrative enough, right? So if you think about civic, you think about the public, it it means a lot of times taking care of or trying to serve um, more vulnerable populations that might not be served by some of these market-based um, products or services. So within civic tech, how do we design products and services for the general public in a way that can actually be adopted and have more voices, not just the connected voices, you know, take part in, in what it means to, to use and participate in civic tech. Um, and part of that has to be design. So we are thinking a lot about how do we bring more design thinking into the mix. Civic tech was sort of launched out of this idea of, of open data and hackathons and developers coming together. And it was really novel in the beginning. I think that what's missing and what's really going to take it to the next level is more participatory convenings around design and getting people's feedback early and often. So the idea of design with and not for. Um, And so having people feel like they're a stakeholder and a part of these tools being created, I think will make all the difference in in really propelling this field forward. And that would be on all sides. So if you were designing a, uh, to use the word seamless, if you were designing a, you know, menu app delivery connector thing, Mm -hmm. you'd have your not just your restaurants involved, but your diners and the offices and exactly and and also government, right? So I think what what often happens is, you know, civic 
entrepreneurs or civic technologists are setting out to tackle some big problem, right? Like their, their, their intentions start out really big and really good. And I think without involving government as a partner and people that work at a scale of serving the public that could never be reached by a single startup alone, we're missing a big opportunity. So I think part of the goal of civic tech is to really be in partnership with government and people that have been thinking about how to serve the public for a very long time in partnership with entrepreneurs and technologists. And so part of that is what we're starting to call stakeholder-centered design here at Civic Hall Labs. So taking into account the value proposition um, that has to be created for multiple stakeholders in a system to really build something that that can have impact and meaning. So it's looking at the entire system that you're serving, feeding from. Exactly. And how can technology and data really start to shift shift power, to be quite frank, right? So, so shift shift some of the power dynamics uh, in, in fields such as affordable housing or education or criminal justice. You know, these platforms should allow more people to participate and have voice and hold structures accountable. And, and I think that that's what we're, we're seeing globally examples of. And, and there's just not quite as many experiments of that happening at a scale that we think could be possible with civic tech. So that's really what Civic Hall Lab is, you know, looking to kind of move forward is some experiments of models that could start to level the playing field. Any examples you can share? Yeah. Um, so we were able to partner with the Economic Development Corporation here in New York City for the last two years to work with their big apps initiative. So it's the biggest civic innovation initiative in the country. And one of the winners is a company, two years ago, is a company that we worked with called, uh, it's actually not a company, it's a nonprofit tech organization, which is also something uh, we can circle back to. But there's a rise right now of um, tech startups that are choosing a 501c3 status. And that's that's kind of opening up a whole nother avenue of, of real viable solutions, but taking the philanthropic, you know, mission-based route. Mm. Um, so their name is justfix.nyc. And they are a really great example of um, folks who firsthand came into contact with um, the landlord abuses happening as neighborhoods start to gentrify. So a lot of the the violations, landlord violations and, and pushing people out and neglect that starts to happen as neighborhoods change. And they started to interview and meet with all kinds of stakeholders in the housing justice system. And if you think about that, that's lawyers, that's tenant organizers and tenant rights activists and individual tenants themselves. So they started interviewing and talking to all kinds of folks in this system, mapping it, right? So kind of a systems-based approach, addressing lots of stakeholders and looking then from their backgrounds in tech and design, where intervention points could really start to change upstream and downstream, a whole system. And they came up with a really well-designed app, a mobile app, which they know is is not the end-all be-all to solving, right? It's actually the adoption and use of this thing, which mm-hmm. is, goes back to how much time and care they spent with cultivating these relationships to actually get a proof of concept once the mobile app was built. So this mobile app allows tenants and also tenant organizers to document cases of landlord violations, templates to resolve the issue with your landlord, right? So anyone in New York could use it. It doesn't have to just be folks that are really experiencing the most dire situations. It organizes, you know, your photos to document the whole thing. And that creates a case record in a way that allows individuals to go into housing court and win their case without representation. So that's their whole goal, because about 90% of of, uh, housing court cases without a lawyer don't win. Well, right. That's the whole legal system is that way. The legal (laughs) system's here to serve the rich. And so they're starting to measure, though, what it means to have this kind of documentation and people really knowing exactly what they need. And then also the money that it's saving a lot of the pro bono lawyers in stretching dollars farther to help more people too on that flip side. So it's a it's a really great example of how again technology design designed with you know multiple stakeholders in a system can really start to have an impact. And then who if anyone pays for it? 
Yeah, great question. So they are looking at some different models. They're investigating, you know, would tenant organizers or the city who's looking for data, right, like pay X amount of fee for some of the data exchange. So, so still thinking about how to create earned revenue from their work, but they also, because they're a 501c3, they're able to get foundation support in the early days as they continue to develop the model. So that's kind of a fun one. I mean, the in Throwing Rocks the Google Bus, I argued that 501c3 is actually still a profitable model. I mean, just because you're a nonprofit doesn't mean you can't make a oodles of money. You know, it, you just make it as salary and revenue rather than as some yeah, flipping of company. Right. Well, and, and also, uh, yeah, the difference is that there aren't profits that go to shareholders or owners, right? Like to your point, it goes right. back into the organization. It goes back into salaries, but there absolutely can be earned revenue for sure. Yeah. And also nonprofits, 501c3s can spin off and own LLCs right. and for profits, right? So as you kind of expand business models and understand what is charitable and what could be business, you know, a lot of these structures can, that's where the creativity, like I was talking about last time, you have to understand how to structure and different financial options, you know, to get these things really off the ground. I mean, a lot of people, probably the most, the most common email I receive, and this, I would say I'm getting 30 or 40 of this particular email every day. Wow. Is I'm starting a thing, a platform, piece of software, an app, or a physical product, and I want to do it the right way. You know, I have the idea. Mm. I don't have, don't have a team. I don't have money. I don't have anything, but I've got the idea. You know, what do I do? You know, and I'm not going to send them to the, you know, the startup playbook or something, you know, or startups right. for dummies. Yeah. You know, what's, not everyone can come to Civic Hall Labs either and, and, and get to the, you know, through the idea stage. What's an easy sort of one-stop starting place? Yeah, great question. So um, Open IDEO, which is, is an example of um, projects that are getting posted that, you know, are getting traction, but also toolkits around human-centered design. So HCD is the acronym um, that I'm sure you've heard of. There's, there's a lot of toolkits online about how to take an idea and do the, do this, you know, the steps that any designer would go through before they built a line of code. So these are the, the secret sauce, in my opinion, uh -huh. that we're not deploying enough. We're jumping to the tool. We're jumping to like, I want to create an app. I'm going to create a platform before really understanding the problem and the value of, you know, the product market fit, I guess. And right. you can get there through these approaches to design thinking and prototyping without having to write a line of code. And so I would say that, you know, folks that want to understand these tools and how to really take an initial nugget of an idea and really drill down to uh, a problem statement that they feel like is the right problem to be solving. Because I think that in many cases, um, it, it, we're not asking or we're not identifying the correct problem. So we're, we're solving for something that is not quite the right thing. People who work within innovation know that the problem statement and the problem identification is sort of 80, gets you 80% of the way there in terms of innovating yeah no it's um, just like in school your research question exactly, once you really have it exactly and and that's you know so i think focusing uh more time on that before jumping to like this is the tool that will solve out all the things we really should be tool agnostic at the beginning of these processes and that's that's i think what we need to flip on on its head a little bit in terms of where people start so i i would say a human-centered design um the toolkits that are out there are fa fantastic acumen um, also partnered with IDEO to create some courses that help mm -hmm. people walk through these steps. Um, they seem simple. Um, they actually are not quite as simple as they appear and they do take practice, but they really will get you so much farther in terms of having a viable researched, you know, again, prototype where you shouldn't have to spend much money to get there. You know, and I think so, so much of, um, the next steps in terms of investors or accelerators or whatever it 
may be if they see that that's the type of research and process that you've gone through to arrive at the solution that you now want to create, it, it changes everything. Yeah. And there's even, you know, free prototyping platforms. Yeah, right? absolutely. I, mean, I forgot the names of them, but uh, one is Envision, right, I believe. Envision. Yeah, that um, which is which is I N Vision yep. as opposed to E N. Yeah. yeah. Yep. Absolutely. And yeah, you can do pretty much everything there. Emulate a cell phone. Emulate yep. a, whatever you want. Yeah. Exactly. And really getting an, people to interact with, you know, your initial concept and see how they respond and understand, you know. And I think then the next thing is the business model design, right? So you could design a great product, but it's not necessarily obvious how to turn it into a business. Yeah. I mean, it feels like the the philosophical or almost spiritual bridge people have to cross is, you know, they start out thinking about a problem, even a problem with civilization and think, I understand if people only connected in this way, instead of that way, everyone would be happy. And they don't really test that. They yeah. want to then, okay, now I'm going to go to Code Academy yes. and learn Python so I can build the new way for humans to connect. Right. And then it's like, no, you want to connect to people that way. And that's great. You should start connecting right. to people right. in this new way. But you've got to somehow test or, and we're also afraid to talk. Yeah. You know, I'm starting a course at Queens, a, a tech development lab. And the first assignment is tell 10 people about your idea. Yeah. Different people, people you don't necessarily know, and write down what they said. Yeah, yeah. And and no one, everyone doesn't want to hear. Right. Because it may, they may just think, I don't really want that. Yeah. Yeah. And you know that you bring up a really great point. When we, I've worked with um, social entrepreneurs now for the last eight to ten years. Mm. I've been one myself. Um, and the folk, the characteristic that I look for more than anything else is this ability to. Uh, fail. They're not afraid of failing. They just want to get answers and and course correct, right? As they just generate new information and run small experiments and they're open to something not going super well, they know that's a part of the process. And so if people aren't open to that or, or aren't open to listening and getting feedback and knowing that it's it's not personal, right? Like that's yeah. the other thing. It's, um, it's, it's people really that... Um, those types of folks are the ones that are going to get to breakthrough because they are hearing what people, how people already behave, you know, with the kind of value that and needs that they have. And if you're not addressing or felt need, you know, see you later. Like it's not going right. to work out. Well, well. then you're going to have to go and hire kids out of the Captology <laughs> Lab at Stanford to entrain people or hypnotize right. them into using yeah. your thing. <laughs> right. Right. So, you know, usability testing is a whole area that these tech companies spend a lot of money on. And I think that as a part of the civic tech field and this growing space, we need to figure out how do we do more usability testing with the general public, with all kinds of different populations, especially as government starts to become more digital. So the more platforms and the more forms and everything that has to be done online, you know, that really needs to be tested in a, on a wide variety with a ri- wide variety of individuals to make sure that that's that's working well. Um, I think all of us want to see government, you know, move into the the 21st century, but it, it does have ramifications if we don't have you know, the kinds of usability testing, public usability testing methods as a part of a lot of these procurement contracts, which we're not, right. we're not seeing. Right. I mean, well, I mean, to me, civic tech kind of means two things. There's the kind that we're talking about, which is the, I'm going to make an app that's going to help homeless people find uh, shelters, so, yeah, right. you know, mm-hmm. assuming that homeless people have smartphones capable of using your new app that's right. only iOS 10 right. compatible, right, right. you know, but let's assume they get part through. of the user research. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> right. None of them have cell phones or none of them have service. It's not going to, but anyway, those kind, those, those sort of do good civic. Right. And then there are these almost uh, uh, political things like uh, uh, digital democracy and finding out about your candidates. It's sort of this whole other movement. Yeah. Thinking that the internet can make democracy more Wikipedic and less, mm-hmm. you know, uh, sure. television commercial. In both cases, though, there's a danger of, it feels to me anyway, there's a danger of externalizing some of our real world social responsibility. So, if we make an app for old people 
who are wheelchair bound to be able to watch the church or synagogue service of their choice on the internet. Mm-hmm. Beautiful, great idea. Now they can sit at home and watch it. But now the church no longer has to send teenagers out with wheelchairs and vans to go bring those people into a live community. So how do we how do we kind of steer that that high-minded, loving, sympathetic urge to solve problems with technology? And, and help people see that sometimes you're not really, you're just adding to the problem. Yeah. Creating, creating new problems. Yeah. yeah. Well, I think that that's, that's a part of why I feel so passionate about this idea of stakeholder centered design, because there's, there needs to be an analysis around a lot of different people in a system in terms of a t- technology being adopted. It doesn't just affect that one user. There's multiple impacts on a system of of that person, you know, homebound, just now only getting a screen in front of them to to listen to the the service every Sunday versus being in contact with people, right? So I think the irony is that technology can be super isolating and cause you know more of the sort of problems that I think we're we're seeing, or it can stimulate social connection and, you know, some of the other things that we're, we're hoping to see in society. So it's, it's, it's a tool, right? And so I think that, again, if it's not used within a context that's well understood and measured, I think that's the other thing with civic tech, we're thinking about how do you measure these impacts, right? It's not just about necessarily number of users on your platform. If you set out to, you know, help to solve social isolation or loneliness with seniors through a technology, you need to be measuring that somehow with social science techniques, you know, that a lot of uh, folks out there in the nonprofit space use all the time. So it's just not good enough to just spin up a tool and call it civic tech. Or to look at it from the outside. If you talk to the, to the old woman and say, well, why do you go to church? Right. She just wants certainly not to listen to that damn preacher. You know, it's to meet her friends and play bingo or do whatever it is she does there. Right. Exactly. And if and if in that instance, if the person, if the civic technologist creating that technology was set out to not just create a technology, but to actually understand the felt needs of that woman, would they have arrived at that solution? Right. And so that's where, how can we start to flip the equation and say, what, you know, what problem are you setting out to try to solve and, and understand first and foremost, and not starting with the tool. Right. Which in a way brings us at the end to the very beginning of this process, which is the, the second most common email that I get, which is, well, I kind of know how to program and do this. What should I do? I don't, I need an idea. You know, for a thing. And then they end up looking for the idea online, which is kind of sad. So you're going to solve some Internet problem. Right. But what's a way? It sounds like such a basic question, but how do you interrogate the real world for what it needs? Yeah, I mean, social science has been doing this for a long time. Anthropologists, like there's a lot of people that I think understand how to ask questions, how to understand the world, human behavior, um, human psychology, right? And and we need to be deploying more of those tools in the beginnings of these, these solutions um, or in the creation of these solutions. And so that's where, again, I get back to, to the techniques that designers will use. And I think researchers will at times, academic researchers sometimes balk at because they're like research light tools in terms of understanding people, right? But they, they are at least something that, you know, someone who isn't an academic could take and start to actually understand the process. They're, they're imperfect for sure, but, but they're the, a start. But so, so, you know, Joe is, uh, in a mid-sized American city working as a designer at an advertising agency because he needed a job at a sure. college. Yeah. And while he's there, he's thinking, I wish I could apply my design skills to good instead of evil or at least compensate or take my time on weekends and start to develop something to then not even do this ad thing at all anymore. Yep. Where... A very, I mean, very common email that we get, actually, right. is this exact scenario. And you tell them what? Go to a meetup? Walk around? Yeah, great, great question. So I think that there is 
there's more and more um, spaces opening up for people to plug in to whether it's nonprofits or government to use these skills. Tech for the public interest or public interest technology is, is a phrase that the Ford Foundation and New America and Code for America and others and the U.S. Digital Service has sort of pioneered. You know, we, we are working on a, a model called pro bono tech, which is, you know, synonymous with pro bono legal and, and how that industry has just started to adopt, um, you know, enabling lawyers to work on public good cases, right. right? So what would that look like if tech companies could allow their employees to, to use their skills using technology design and data, right, for, for nonprofits? I think the biggest disconnect, which is what we really need to think about how do we create more space for, is bringing nonprofit professionals, government agency professionals, people who have been on the front lines of serving the public and understand these issues, you know, researchers, right, um, through and through policymakers, everyone, it, ACLU, Planned yeah, Parenthood, in, in yeah. part, you know, in, they need to be connected to the designers and the technologists, right? So how do we create more space for this cross-sector collaboration to happen so that a designer could understand the problem in and out from real people who have been living, breathing, thinking about this day in and day out. And too often, you know, those, those different disciplines are siloed and they're not coming into contact with each other. We're just at the very beginning, I think, of, of, of what kinds of models and what kinds of access we can start to provide for all this talent that really wants to plug in and do something good. Yeah, I guess it's, again, you know, not to get too team human-y about it, but it's about <laughs> finding the others. Yes. You know, who else wants to do this? Who is it you want to serve? Where is there a need? Walk around and you'll start to see it. Yep, absolutely. And I think, you know, so much of civic tech, its value is local, right? And and people feel like they understand this notion of civic tech if it improves their daily experience in a city or in their town or wherever they live. And so I think the more that people start to, like to your point, start to observe and plug into their local communities they will find places to deploy their skill sets, right? Like thinking about a designer, or data visualization specialist, attending community board meeting, right? Like they're going to see ways that they could improve upon those things. And it really requires being in relationship with people on the community board or within your community, you know, if you're going to try to tackle these things. Like they have to be, it has to be in partnership. And it also requires resisting the temptation to see digital tech as a, uh necessarily a scaling phenomenon. Absolutely. So we think a lot about this where a lot of civic tech, um, we talk about instead of scale, like the the hockey stick kind yeah. of scale that a lot of Silicon Valley talks about is what does replication look like? So if you have a model like the Just Fix NYC example that is being incubated and utilized here in New York City, what is the replication of that model and the use of that technology in a different context that might have a different political, different cultural context, but still be struggling with some of these same issues? How can it be utilized and deployed within, you know, again, this place-based idea? So replication is kind of the way we want to think about civic tech. And, and that means it's a different set of, you know, revenue potential and, and return potential um, that has to be considered, too, as these things get started. Yeah, it's what the Pope's called subsidiarity, you know, <laughs> yes, that exactly. a business is only as big as it needs to be and then make another one over there. Yeah, absolutely. And it'll be more specific and circular and local and real. Right. and exactly. So sharing out these learnings so that others can can take pieces of whether it's the open code or the design or, you know, the context to, to solve problems. I think that's part of the challenge right now within the civic tech community is because it is so localized, there isn't a place for a lot of this sharing of learnings about what's working or what's not. Or if, if you're someone within a government housing agency and you're trying to solve a problem, you know, where do you go to see if someone's already worked on the tool or the thing that could help you, right? Like we really don't have a center of gravity yet as a field or a hub, if you will, 
to be able to understand all of the great work that's happening around the country that it that is really localized in a lot of cases. Right. So it's really shifting. It's almost to a federal model, if you will, but but to something that 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 scales mm-hmm. through examples and models rather than through some exactly growth target. Right. Yeah. Absolutely. Which feels so much more human. <laughs> it does, right? It, you know, it, yeah, it's it's more of a human scale. They yeah. have to change what they to change their definition of success and what's going to feed them. It's like, no, you know, you don't have to become Zuckerberg. Right. What if you're a great local band? Yeah. And the no. town just friggin' loves you. Absolutely. Is that enough? Yeah. It's, it's re it's recalibrating. Right. And, and realizing again, that, um, we shouldn't all be going after those unicorn models. That j- it just isn't reality. I think most people like to live in places where, you know, from an urban planning perspective, have a, a diverse, interesting, you know, mix of local businesses, of individuals that have a particular take on their neighborhood and have a history in a place who create something for everyone to enjoy, right? As a local business owner, I think about civic tech in a, in a similar fashion, yeah. right? Yeah. It makes sense. I mean, we spend the vast majority of our lives in our bodies. <laughs> <laughs> You know what I mean, I, yes. and our bodies spend the vast majority of time like in places. Yes, so right. So being focused on that is really the, not so the bad. Physical, yeah, yeah. How physical and in in real life, right? That we actually are. Yeah. Yeah. Well, thanks. Thanks for being in our real lives. Yeah, and, absolutely. And this being, is fantastic conversation. Thank yeah. you. Yeah. And I want to come to your things. Well, first, for people to find out, they can find out about um, Civic Hall Labs by going to civichalllabs.org. Yes, exactly. It is Civic Hall Labs. So there's three L's in that, uh, .org. Yep, that's where you can find us. And uh, it's based here in uh, New York City. But there's all sorts of ways, I'm sure, to plug in, see what's going on and learn from their experiences. Yeah, absolutely. And I think um, we would love to share more for people that want to either be a part of our new pro bono tech initiative, you know, talk to folks, companies or even skills based digital professionals that want to plug in. And then the other big program that we're excited to to test out and then report back on is our Civic Excel yeah. Ideas Accelerator. Yeah. Yeah, that's what I want to find out about. Yeah, we will We will have a few more conversations, I'm sure, <laughs> about right, the good. next steps. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you, Doug. Thanks for joining Team Human. We'll be back in the Basement Media Squad here at the Laboratory for Digital Humanism again next week with new strategies for human intervention in the machine. This show was produced and edited by Stephen Bartolome. Hey, this is Stephen here. Just a quick thank you to all those who have signed up on Patreon. We're very close to our first Patreon subscriber goal, and our subscriber Slack team is growing. Again, if you can't afford to subscribe right now, feel free to email to join the Slack team, and please support the show by reviewing it on iTunes, sharing episodes with your friends, passing it along on Twitter. This week's show featured music from Mike Watt, team human friend and guest are you serious and the music you hear right now is thanks to discord records and fugazi visit this episode's page at teamhuman.fm to learn more about civic hall labs and find ways to get involved projects to connect with my name is Stephen bartolome and i'm on team human and i'm douglas rushkoff team human our last best hope for peeps Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. 
Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.